Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I interview somebody I went to college with, and I haven't seen her since. She and I played volleyball way back when, just pick up. Bottom line is we reunited recently, virtually, not face-to-face, and her name is Rufina Garay, and we dive into her favorite subject, which is food. <laughs> so she has a podcast that is called Food Love. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's a new podcast, and it talks all about food. And she wanted to interview me to have me on the food podcast that she has. And I was like, well, I'm not really an expert about food. I eat garbage. But she still wanted to interview me. So I thought, okay, how about we do a bi-directional interview? In other words, that I'm not just interviewing her or she's not interviewing me, but it's, guess what, a conversation just old school conversation like most people have in real life it would be kind of a reunion of sorts and so that's what we decided to do and we talked for so long over two hours that i decided to break it up into four episodes so this is part one of four and i'll be releasing them over the next couple of weeks because i am starting to change a little bit of my strategy with regard to podcasting i want to give shorter episodes because i realize that so many people have a little bit of time i just look at myself for example i subscribe to certain shows that give two hour or more podcasts tim ferris jocko willink lex friedman and others who just have these really long podcasts which are fascinating i enjoy them But I realize there's probably other people who are subscribed to the same podcast that I'm doing, and they just don't have that much time during the day. So I'd rather give shorter podcasts to make it a little bit more accessible, more digestible for certain people. Tell me what you guys think about the strategy. I hope it works. Even if I break up an interview into several segments, do you think that still works for you? Let me know by sending me an email at ft at francistapon.com or putting a comment in the show notes, which are in every episode. But before we dive into the episode, I want to read two recent reviews that I got on Apple Podcasts, and they happen to be five-star reviews. Now remember, I nowadays read all reviews, even critical reviews on the air, just to share all my dirty laundry. In this case, I got two five-stars. One from mquinn72, who says, Phenomenal! Francis is very entertaining and funny. I truly enjoy listening to him. The second one I got was from Ma Petite 13 Instructive. Francis Tapon is an erudite podcaster. I feel learned just by reading how erudite I am. Thank you, guys. And now we're going to go into part one of a four-part series featuring Rufina, my friend. And you're going to see that it's not just me me interviewing her, but she interviews me as well. And if you like food, I definitely encourage you to go to her up-and-coming podcast and subscribe. And now, here is Rufina Gray. Francis, you and I used to play volleyball together. Yes. I was lucky enough, Francis. And I think you were really part of why I got to stay in that little hub of people um, playing volleyball because it was a couple members of the men's volleyball team who used to practice in the off season. 
And I wasn't part of the women's volleyball team, but I was like a lover of volleyball. And you were really inviting and inclusive in that time frame, and, and really made my my experience in the freshman year of college exciting yes. to have friends like that. No, that was awesome. It was great. Good memories. Yeah. And here, here you've spent time traveling, is it 122 countries? Yes. Yeah, that's incredible to me. I would have never guessed that you would have gone off and done that. I knew you were worldly back then. And I guess today I'm really interested in hearing you talk about what that connection is between food and travel and, you know, how, how you have experienced different countries through that lens. Yeah. And I'm also interested in, in firing some questions right back at you. So one of the yeah. things that I hope both of our listeners, because we're going to air this podcast on your podcast as well as the Wander Learn podcast, so that people yeah. can get to know you as well. So I hope this Thank is you. going to be a conversation where we both mm-hmm. kind of bombard each other with questions as yes. opposed to just uh, going one way. It's going to be bidirectional. Right. We're, yeah, we're going to volley exactly. <laughs> like we used to. Volley. <laughs> right. Exactly, right. But don't, don't spike me. No right. spikes. Exactly. Right, right, right. <laughs> And so I'll set you up. Yeah. So, yeah. So Rafina and I knew each other since college, but we haven't talked in, what is it? 25 years or whatever it's been. At least. Um, Yeah. So it's, this is our little reunion, public, our public reunion. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I've been to a lot of countries and I guess I, here's the thing. I'm a vegan when I want, when I can be, in other words, I, that's, I prefer to be vegan, but Mm -hmm. when I travel, I put my vegan habits aside and Uh. I believe that so much of travel is the food experience that Mm. it would really be terrible to go to Japan and not have sushi. It would be terrible to go to Argentina and not have an asado, which is a, Mm. you know, piece of meat. And this is just part of the culinary experience that you should have when you travel internationally. So even though I don't like to eat animals when I'm in the United States, I will when I travel abroad. And so that's one of the ways I, I, I kind of break that rule, if you will. And and this, sure. the other time I break the rule is when I'm a guest at somebody's house. So let's say if I'm in Ohio, I don't live in Ohio, and I'm a guest somewhere and they serve me hamburgers, I'll eat the hamburgers. So those are the two okay. areas where I are not, uh, I'm not a very militant vegan. Let's put it that way. Okay. okay. Well, that's really interesting because sometimes for people, it's really difficult to make those adjustments and adaptations. And I think it really speaks to, you know, wanting to learn, like you've talked about travel being the the best university. And I think, you know, in my own experience, when I've traveled abroad, I've tried to, to have that same like rule for myself to eat whatever's offered in part out of respect for people's traditions and also as an attempt to learn more about h- how people live, right? Like there's that insight that you get from being part of the rituals of food making and um, food preparation and then sitting at a table and sharing both the conversation and the meal. Right. But Rafina, have you ever eaten something that you didn't want to eat? In other words, did you ever were you ever in a situation where your hosts offered you something that you're like, I really don't want to eat this. And either you refused or you ate it, but grudgingly. Yes. 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 In my first trip back um, as an adult to the Philippines, my cousins put out on the table, the whole fish and they offered me the fish eyeballs. (laughs) 
And it was, it was this moment where I was sort of like, and I was with my brother, who's about a year and a half older. And my brother Gus and I, I would say, engaged in what I would call competitive eating when we were younger. So some of it was unhealthy in terms of eating like a couple Big Macs and, and trying to out eat my older brother for no reason other than to be competitive. I was so competitive as a younger child. And with respect to the fish eyeball, my brother was afraid to eat it. So here was like a potential opportunity for a clear win as an adult. We had not traveled together to the Philippines ever. I had gone when I was six years old and I just wanted to win. <laughs> uh, and I, wanted, I wanted my cousins to know that I could do this and I was unafraid and that I could embrace my Filipino heritage and, and do what I had always seen my parents do, right? Like when my parents would sit and eat, they would like deconstruct the head of the fish. Like the head of the fish becomes its own dish in um, certain soup preparations in the Philippines. And it's a delicacy. The eyeball in particular is a delicacy. And I imagine actually, I can't tell you if this is part of Filipino tradition or if it was just my father's way to coax us into eating some of the more traditional foods. He would tell you that the eating the fish eyeball would give you better sight, um, would make you more intelligent, all of these different things, none of which I think would have any real backing in science. At the same time, my father from a very young age was telling us that fish was brain food. And it was long before I read it in a Martha Stewart article that there was legitimate scientific background for it being brain food. And, and now, you know, there are doctors writing about it and this is your brain on food and, um, and brain food. So, so there are some things that are part of folklore that actually are being proven to be true in science. So anyway, I ate the fish eyeball and it was crunchy. It was crunchy. crunchy. Little, I thought it would be know. more like squishy yeah. and kind of like. It would be, it's, there's just such a little part of it that's squishy. The predominant um, textural impact is crunchy because mm. you're, because I wasn't expecting the crunch when my teeth bit into it and I got the crunch at the end, I was like, oh, that was not what I expected. Yeah. But, but I would say that I felt good after I ate it. Because I had won um, the respect of my cousins, right, who who didn't think that I was some, you know, college kid from the U.S. just coming in and dancing and waltzing through it. And then I was willing to be part of my ancestral heritage. Um, so it felt good to me. And then I kind of lorded it over my brother. Exactly. He ate the second eyeball. <laughs> he ate the second oh. eyeball, but it just wasn't the same, oh, right? Okay. The second doesn't really matter. <laughs> And you didn't, what about the, 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 the anus of the fish? Did you eat that? No. You know, so that's an interesting <laughs> thing because when you um, cut into the, the fish, when you're fabricating the fish, you cut from the top part all the way down to the anus. So when you talk about eating it, whenever you're eating part of the belly in that area, the anus is just a hole. It's like, so, so there's not any importance to it in the same way that you might think. What would matter more is people eating the guts of, of the fish, I think, which, which people do. And I think my father was notorious for eating like almost everything inside the, the fish that was edible. So much so that I, I really had to stop him because one day he, he just kept eating it and ended up in the hospital for food poisoning <laughs> because they think there were toxins in one of the organs. Oh, wow. But yeah, I, I tend to stray away from that. I do like to eat the awful of different kinds of livestock. Um, so, you know, preparations of beef liver and things like that in, in the form of charcuterie. 
and pork liver um, and and chicken livers. So I have been vegan for all of two weeks, but now I'm an omnivore. And I think someday I'll be vegan again, I'm certain, um, because there are so many aspects about it that I appreciated. But for now, I'm still an omnivore. What happened that during your, what was, how many weeks were you in, a vegan or vegetarian? It was two weeks mm-hmm. and I um, have in the past cooked for a Taoist priest and his um, meditation and Tai Chi retreats. In in those particular cases, um, we kind of follow a restrictive diet that is heavily plant-based and eliminates all pungent spices. So one has to learn to cook with the essence of herbs and um, extract flavor in different ways. Got it. And did how did your body, the reason you went back to eating animals and, and forgetting about it, what was the, the thing? You just felt the urge to like, I, I really want kind of animal protein or animal meat in general? No, I, you know, I think it's more that I cook for the whole family and I have a young uh, son and a, a partner who I think need to eat meat right now in, in terms of some of the B vitamins that are available. Because when I think about um, the nutritional aspects, one has to be very conscientious about how to intake your B12, which is more readily available in meat. So if one is not intentional enough about it, if one's running around too much and just not doing it, you just won't get enough. And so it was much easier for me to eat meat than to try and orchestrate things that a you know six-year-old would eat and ensure that he would get enough um, or that my partner would get enough. One thing that baffles me is I don't understand why B12 supplements, whenever you take them, they have not 100% of your US, you know, your RDA, your recommended daily allowance, but usually like 1,000 or 10,000% of your RDA, which I really never... I haven't researched yeah. it. I'm sure there's an answer as to why that is. But yeah. and the, and the tablets are tiny. I don't know the answer. Yeah, I would imagine that it's because so little of it is truly bioavailable. Maybe that you would have to kind of, you know, provide a significant overage to be able to get what you actually need. Right. That yeah. would be my guess. Yeah. No, that sounds reasonable. I just always and and the other thing I think I think flax seeds also has mm. B12. If I'm right or wrong, I'm not sure about that. Yes, you are. I'm pretty certain you're right about that. Yeah. Um, flax seeds have have become important. We we have like two different bags of them in our oh. cooler, but you should grind them. You should right. grind them. Right. Eating yeah. them whole is not so useful. Right, right, right. Yeah. They need to be pre either ground in your mouth or grounded before you put them in. And yeah. You've got to chew them like a lot if you're going to chew them. <laughs> yes. yeah. they got, you basically have yeah. to liquefy it in your mouth before you swallow, right. which is what I right. do. I, which to me is, do you? Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have. I always have <laughs> flax seeds with me, and I and I just take it and I just put a bunch in my mouth and I just chew it for about, I don't know, three to five minutes, and then I swallow. Does that make up part of your um, packed like foods when you go on these big hikes? Um, do you it, take your flax seeds with you? Uh, I did take a lot of nuts and seeds and that kind of stuff. I'm not sure if I took specifically flax seeds when I went on my long distance hikes, but yeah, it it, it is an important. As a vegetarian, like you you mentioned, B twelve is is the Achilles heel, and mm-hmm. so you you have to do it. But I know I don't think it's that cumbersome of a thing in order to overcome. In other words, it's not that inconvenient to either eat flax seeds or take a supplement to get that B twelve sure. thing. So I think it's yeah. it's manageable. But yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, you had 
a question, I think. You had several questions. So maybe we can go into some of those questions. And then later on, I wanted to talk about your reaction to the hunting podcast. And that I had with Laura, uh, Brittany Longoria, as and mm-hmm. and as well as an input I heard on KQED forum, where it was a woman who was talking about the food situation in the United States. So those mm-hmm. are two topics that I want to tackle later on. But okay. first, maybe we can tackle one or two questions that you sure. have. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about another podcast I think you'll enjoy. If I've learned anything about you, it's that you want real talk about the world around you. That's why I think you'll like the podcast Out Travel the System, brought to you by Expedia. It's taking a transparent look at what it's like to travel these days, whether it's through stories from people who have continued cautiously traveling through the pandemic or by staying tuned to the very latest news from the industry. Out Travel the System is backed by a solid foundation of data from Expedia, which means it can guide listeners through the best ways to maximize their travel budgets. The podcast is providing inspiration by talking to people who have made travel a central part of their lives, from professional travel bloggers to travel journalists and beyond. This season features U.S. destinations like Chicago, Boston, and New York, as well as international locations like Spain and France. The episodes will guide you through when to go, where to stay, what to do, and everything else you need to know. Look for Out Travel the System on your favorite podcast platform and like and subscribe now. This episode is sponsored by Rerouted, which is creating a trusted online marketplace to revolutionize the used outdoor gear industry. This allows you to create your own adventure. You know, buying outdoor gear is super expensive and rerouted is allowing you to do it in a sustainable and inexpensive way. For those who are buying gears, it's great because you're doing something that is environmentally responsible. You're recycling, reusing material and gear. You're also able to get it at an affordable price. So that's the win for those who are buyers. What about for the sellers? Well, you can donate to charity and you can have 50% of the sale of price go to your favorite charity. And also it's a great way just to get rid of stuff that's been accumulating in your closet and not put it into a landfill. It's a great alternative. So how do you get involved? Whether you're a buyer or a seller, you go to rerouted.co. Again, that's rerouted.co. Are there any foods out there that you've tried in your travels that you would never eat again? Good question. I'm not really that. And so in Africa, there's a thing called beignet. That's how they say it in French. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's a flower in a ball the size of a tennis ball. And it's deep fried. And that's it. it they add a little bit of sugar, if anything, almost nothing. Really has very little nutritional value. All it does is it serves to fill you up. And yeah, caloric to me, yeah, and high calories and that kind of stuff. So I shouldn't say I'll never try it again because I'm probably going back to Africa. Uh, and sometimes mm-hmm. when you're really hungry on the street, there it is. It's just they're selling it on the street. You take it, but that's probably on. Oh, what about you? For me, um, well, I had I had this experience when I was in Russia as a college student, where there was a, a, the equivalent of something like lardo in Italy. It's it's really just pure fat that's been rendered from an animal. And in this case, it was probably pigs. Um, could have been beef. I'm not too sure, actually. Um, it, everything's hard in translation, right? I spoke enough Russian to get by. 
but not enough to know the idiosyncrasies of language around fat from livestock. So, right. so, but I had, I had it offered to me on multiple occasions because it was such a prized delicacy within the culture that, you know, it was offered to me in St. Petersburg and then like this mountainside where this couple was tending livestock in the mountains. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't refuse in, in the first two instances because I knew it was part of ritual and culture and their appreciation for me as a traveler coming to their country to learn about them and to learn the language more deeply. But what I found was I just couldn't palate the warming of the fat in my mouth and the liquefying effect of it. Like there was something about that that made me really think about the animals right. in a way that kind of disrupted my own omnivore tendencies. Mm. And I had to find a way to speak to them in Russian to be able to tell them that I, I have a, a long family history of heart disease and that I really shouldn't eat <laughs> this particular delicacy. And I'd love to just save it for everybody else who can eat it. So by the third time, I learned to say that in Russian and just could politely like decline and, and leave it for my other friends. And, and unfortunately, at that time, I was traveling with a good friend of mine now from Amherst, who was a vegetarian at the time. And she, like me, had done the same thing. We would eat what they gave us. Right. And she had not, she was a couple years behind in her study of Russian language and she had not learned to say the sentence, sentences. <laughs> so she was, she was eating it and it was just, you know, an incredible sacrifice on her part to be immersed in culture. And then, you know, we, we kind of navigated our way to, to, to avoiding it at the end. But, but I probably wouldn't eat that again. <laughs> if I could avoid it. It's just not, it's not a pleasant feeling for me. And I like prosciutto, but that's like, you know, lean protein with a very thinly sliced piece. These, the, these pieces of fat were like chunks, mm. chunks, like, like people would suck on them like candy. And it was, it was a little hard for me. Wow. Yeah. That's one thing that I find fascinating wherever you go on the world, people have a tendency to think their cuisine is the best cuisine in the world. Mm. And I kind of, there's people are so tied to their food. If you ask any immigrant, no matter what country, whether you're in France and you ask immigrants or whether you're in South America and you ask immigrants or if you're in the United States and you ask immigrants, you ask them, what do you miss most about your home country? Food. That is yeah. almost always the response because they feel their food, which they grew up on, is the best in the world, no matter yeah, where it is. Yeah. And And here's my objective scientific rebuttal to that. I think hmm. there are foods that one can say, quote unquote, objectively are better than others, certain cuisines. And, he, and I'll run this by you and you tell me what, if you think I'm, I'm, I'm full of Yeah, run it by me. So the idea is this, if the cuisine is found widespread in various different international locales, then that is something that is universal to the human palate. I'll give you an example. Hmm. Thailand is a tiny little country and yet you can find Thai food all over the planet. You can find it in Europe. You can, well, in Africa, it's a bit hard, but you can find it in South America. You can find it certainly in the United States and it's, it's widespread. It's a tiny country. Meanwhile, Russia is, is the biggest country in the world geographically. And yet it's really hard to find Russian food outside of Eastern Europe. You don't see Russian mm -hmm. restaurants in New York. I'm sure there are one or two, but in general, it's just not a widespread. So to me, that is the way the world votes for mm. a cuisine. For example, Chinese food is widespread. So for some reason, Chinese food has hit a chord 
among people. Now, granted, mm-hmm. it's a big country. That's why I cite mm-hmm. Thailand because it's such a more interesting example because it's such a small country. Uh, mm-hmm. Mexican food mm-hmm. is pretty pretty widespread. It's made around the world as well. Uh, you know, hamburgers also for its uh, make its way. Mm-hmm. So that's my metric. If somebody tells me their food is fabulous, like here's another thing: Ethiopian food. Why is Ethiopian <clears throat> food so widespread? But you don't see food from Nigeria being that popular. It's around. Mm-hmm but it's not nearly yeah. as prevalent. When I search yeah. for African food in the United States, I'll get like three or four Ethiopian restaurants and maybe one West African restaurant. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's my metric. What do you think? Do you think I'm full of it? Um, a little bit. Okay. Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Um, so it was really interesting when you talk about Russian cuisine, because I, I traveled there such a long time ago and it was really on the cusp of the opening up of the country. And um, when we went there... You know, we had come with this American concept of, well, there should be restaurants available to us to try the best of Russian cuisine. And what we learned as students was there were so few restaurants, right, because there were shortages of food. We were standing in lines to get bread. You know, that was the context of the opening up of of Russia. This is in the 1990s. yeah, in the 1990s. And so when, you know, I, I brought over a suitcase full of peanut butter and different things, pastas, and, you know, the students ate some, and then we shared them with people who were friends of ours at the time. So that there weren't restaurants because the access to the supply chain wasn't really quite there. It doesn't surprise me. So if you think about that from a business perspective, right, if the country itself doesn't have like this inherent food industry, it's it's sort of behind us in its timeline in the development of that industry. So the sharing of the food would happen differently. Like if you go to a a, a person's home, like my father had a good friend who was Russian. The food is made in the home. There's a lot of preservation. There's a lot of fermentation. And there are a lot of really delicious foods. Like some of the best chicken soup I had uh, was made by the grandmother of a friend who is Russian. And man, that babushka can cook. (laughs) I mean, like cook better than many chefs. And so where you're going to find the cuisine is in the home. And I think that's also true of you know, maybe what you see more with Nigerian foods as well, you know, the invitation to eat the foods and the the business aspects of navigating business and starting up a business, you know, just, it, it, I think people have just started it and, and made it part of like the family business. And, you know, in some, some cultures, it's not the, the norm to begin that as like the first form of business. Whereas, you know, I have friends who are Indonesian, and their whole family is involved in the restaurant business. And so it just becomes an extension of how people open up their households almost in this new country. And we just have more availability. And you're right, I think, about this. This is where you're not BSing people, where there is a certain level of quick adaptation to things that hit your palate in the way that it hits certain buttons. That's like that's how we talk about it in the in the home space. Like certain foods hit your buttons. And when there's this balance of the five tastes, sweet, salty, bitter, umami, and sour, uh, then you're more apt to recognize how good the quality is because of that balance. And so Thai food inherently with some of the ingredients, right? You think about the lime juices, use the the peanut, which gives umami, the the, the chicken stock that might be used in some of it. And, and then they added sweetness because sometimes there's a little bit of um, sugar used in that sauce. It hits the American palate in such a dynamic way 
because we are accustomed to sweetness, but that balance will, will resonate with anybody because, because our, our mouths are all the same in, in what we recognize for taste and not quite in terms of flavor, right? Well, because, because like if you go to the Coca-Cola Museum, for example, and you taste all their drinks, you'll, you'll see that culturally there's a bitter drink in the Coca-Cola shop that is popular in other countries. But when American people go to taste it, their mouths pucker and they're like, that tastes like poison. And it's because we're not accustomed to including bitter into the repertoire of what we we eat. And even in our sort of Chinese American cuisine, you see less of some of the more traditional foods that are considered to be almost medicinal, like bitter melon, for example, is one of those vegetables where, you know, it's considered very good for the heart, um, but it has that bitterness. And so often you cook it and you pair it with something that has a little more fat. Like one of my favorite things is to make ground pork with bitter melon because the fat compensates for the bitterness. But yeah, I think I might be going on too long about that. (laughs) I think every cuisine has something to offer us. And if we think that there isn't as much flavor or popularity of the foods, it's because we don't know enough. It's because we haven't educated ourselves. We haven't built enough relationships with people who are cooking in the home, who are fabulous cooks. And, and, you know, at the time, like in Russia, when I traveled, there just wasn't access to the supply chain to, to have that kind of opportunity to taste all those foods. But the British have to be with a family, but the British have access to the supply chain. They've had it much more so than any other culture. And yet, British cuisine is not exported very well anywhere outside of the UK. Yeah. And so that's interesting. You know, it's it's because it sucks because it's terrible cuisine. <laughs> that's what it is. And it just, it just doesn't taste that great for most homo sapiens versus Thai food tastes delicious to most homo sapiens. That's why it wins. Indian food is awesome. That's why you see Indian foods all yeah, over the place, but you don't yeah. see British food because it sucks. And so, okay, well, there's, there's a lack of balance, right? Like a lot of times when I'm tasting certain British foods, it, it lacks hitting the buttons because it maybe lacks acid. The maybe scientific lacks... term, Rufina, is it sucks. <laughs> okay. But I will say this. There are fabulous chefs in London because they've been influenced by Who cook so many in things. other cuisines. They, <laughs> well, they, well, I think fat duck might be one of those that doesn't. But, but, but we can debate that another time. But the thing about... The thing about places like London is they have such an influx of immigration and exactly. um, you know different populations. Because their local so- food sucks. <laughs> <laughs> You're just making well, my point, so- darling. <laughs> yeah, well, I hate to say that because I think there's something there. I think I think every cuisine has its highlights. I think I think there's a utilitarianism around common foods in in Britain that that don't excite me. But when you, when you start talking about like the seafood available in certain places, you know, then I think simplicity is greatness and flavor is all about the, the things that, you know, create the natural environment to give you the best product, the best fish or whatever. So, so I would say you still haven't tried everything. And then I would also say that I, I went there for, I think nearly a month when I was in high school and it was at this time where I was at Homerton College, which is part of Cambridge University. And we were a bunch of high school students kind of eating cafeteria style in the morning, but they would put out this spread and they had, I think they had peanut butter out, but they didn't have jelly out. Yeah. 
And sacrilege. I ask, I know, <laughs> sacrilege for an American, right? I'm like, we're, here we were having these scones and they were expecting us to eat peanut, but I'm like, this is like the dry, like it's too sticky. Like, how can they, how can they do this? So I remember asking the, the woman who was working uh, the, the line and I said, is there any way you could find some of that great marmalade or whatever and also put it out in the morning um, instead of with the tea time? Because, you know, in America, we like to eat peanut butter and jelly together. It's like quintessential. And she was just shocked and, and almost slightly offended. Like, how dare you ask me to switch up what we're offering you? Like, the nerve of this girl. And then, like, we were all so happy to have that, like, addition to our breakfast. And I think, you know, it was one of those things where, like, some of the baked goods have, like, a fine quality to them, like the scones and things like that. So I, there's always something I can find to appreciate in every cuisine. And, and you're right. Like, maybe it's only part of the spectrum by comparison to, like, the variety and, the like, all the, the spot-on things that you find in some other cuisines. But I, th- I imagine that as as the world informs the country and the immigrants help the population to learn more we're going to see better food you know so so okay maybe i'm going to give you that one a little i'm going to give that to you i just think it's you're, you're you're skirting a very politically correct line that everybody is like nice and it's good food and we just got to learn but I, anyway we'll we'll uh we'll de- we'll debate <laughs> that later but what you said remind me also of what my wife rejoice said she's from cameroon and when we were traveling through Africa, one time she was making me a, you know, she put bread and put peanut butter on it and then just gave it to me. And I looked yeah. at her and I said, don't ever give me bread and peanut butter without gel. <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> and, and she's like, she looked at me like I was a demon, like, or she's just like, Wait. what the fuck? What is this guy <laughs> talking about? And she it was just right. like, she thought it was so strange. And here, fast forward of about four years later, she's in the U.S. Navy and I talked to her like what she eats at the cafeteria and she's like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> I get it now. Circle. I get it now. <laughs> it really yeah. needs the jelly. <laughs> yeah, it does need the jelly. Well, but until you do it, you don't know that you're missing out on like a better experience, right? Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah. And that's exactly what the British are missing out, a better experience mm-hmm. in the dining, in the kitchen. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll quit poking this exactly. fun at you at this one. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Rufina. There's two different examples I forgot to mention when I was talking with her about why I think certain cuisines are inherently or objectively better than others. Two quick examples. One is Germany versus Italy. Both countries are in Europe, in the middle of Europe, rich countries, and they're similar populations, by the way, and yet one soundly defeats the other in the popularity scale. Germany, in fact, is a richer country, and yet Italy just is far richer as far as its popularity of its cuisine. So that's another indication that Italian food is, by most people's voting, if you will, they vote with their pocketbook, is better than German food. Germany certainly has the capacity to promote its cuisine, and yet it just hasn't succeeded in doing that. The second example is looking at three different countries, two of which are similar population, Japan and Russia, and then one that is much, much smaller called Greece. Greece is only 10 million people. Russia and Japan are roughly 130 million people, so 13 times bigger than Greece. And Greece 
punches so much more above its weight. Greek food is prevalent in so many different countries. Yet Russian food? Not so much. You rarely see it. Meanwhile, Japan is similar to Russia as far as population size and much, much, much smaller geographically. And yet, of course, Japanese food is pretty widespread. Another good example, I think, of how certain countries and cuisines punch way above their weight despite the small size of their country. And meanwhile, you have big countries punching way well below their weight. But tell me what you guys think. Do you think I'm full of it? Or do you think there's something behind what I'm saying? Write a comment on my website, wanderlearn.com, and look for the latest episode about this debate. And don't forget to become a patron at patreon.com slash ftapon. And tune in next week where we debate cafeteria food versus fancy restaurants and how food taste changes depending on how hungry you are and is using salt in your cooking cheating and what food should you eat on the trail and how should you hydrate. Those are topics that we talk about in part two of our four-part series with Rafina.